Hey, what's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Elton. And Wilson. And we're back again for another episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on a journey to explore the minds of successful Asian American founders, operators, and investors. As we discover their secret sauce, we hope you can find yours too. Up until this point, we've learned mostly from successful founders and entrepreneurs. But for the last three episodes, we've invited veteran operators and executives to share the wisdom they've gathered over their career. Our invited guests have worked at some of the world's top tech companies and fastest growing startups. Wilson, what's our lineup looking like? Our lineup starts with Robbie Kwok, Head of Corporate Operations and Strategy at Slack, followed by Robbie's good friend, Dan Yu, COO of NerdWallet. And we finally close with the renowned Gokul Rajaram, Product Engineering Lead at Square. In this week's episode, we have Robbie Kwok. I've known him personally for the past two to three years, and we met while I was actually stalking his LinkedIn profile. I decided to reach out because we coincidentally had the same last name. Wilson still believes he's my uncle. Our relationship all started from just a LinkedIn message. Since then, he's been a mentor of mine, finance to the startup world, and he's been super influential when I had so many questions during that transition. Robbie has worked at some of the fastest growing companies during its growth phase like Yahoo and LinkedIn, and during the journey has connected with some of the most influential names in tech. Listen in to hear Robbie's incredible career and how his close relationships have gotten him to where he is today. Robbie, I guess before we begin, do you mind kind of sharing with us your experience thus far, how you got into tech and where you are today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. I would say I started my career in investment banking. This is in the late 90s, and it was in the technology investment banking group at Merrill Lynch. And at the time, there were lots of startups and IPOs that were happening. And we did that for about three and a half years until the first technology bust that happened wow. in mid-2001. And it was kind of a crazy time for, for all of us, but it was also a crossroad for me personally. Do I stay in banking or do I do something else? And ultimately it was, I want to do something else because the lifestyle of banking really just wasn't suitable for having a family and doing things that I wanted to do. So figured out how to get into Yahoo. And at the time, Yahoo was about 2,000 people. And in the corporate development group, they were looking for someone with banking background. I went and talked to somebody there who I actually knew from Merrill Lynch. So it's kind of the first case of using your network to get into some something. The Corp Dev group was run by Jeff Wiener. Anyway, he, uh, he hired me into the Corp Dev team in 2002, and I worked there for about a year and a half. Jeff then moved into an operating role from Corp Dev Corp Strategy and brought me over from Corp Dev wow. into the operating side of Yahoo, another case of networking. And there I worked for Andrew Braccia, who is a partner at Excel Partners, for the next six years. So working alongside with Andrew and Jeff at Yahoo, and I spent about eight years at Yahoo in various different groups in an operating role. And when Jeff left to go to LinkedIn, he said, hey, I'm starting up a corp dev, biz dev team, would love for you to come and help me with that. And so then the third case of using your network to get into a company. And so I got to LinkedIn when LinkedIn was about 500 people. I spent two years there, went through the public process, left when the company was about 3,000 people, super hyper growth. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do at that point. I've been doing a lot of biz dev and corp dev, and I was really curious more on the 
more hardcore operating side, like people operations and recruiting and finance and things that's kind of back office, but super important. Why that moment? I've been in large companies for about 10 plus years. And at the time I left Yahoo, it was 15,000 people. I've never been at a small startup. You get kind of curious about, hey, what, what can I bring to a small company? Very curious about, hey, what does a 50-person company look like? How, how do I contribute to that? And through various VC connections again, in this case, it was James Slavitt at Greylock. When I said, hey, James, uh, I, I'm looking to do something else, smaller company, he said, okay, there's one company called Telepart that you have to go talk to. Josh McFarland, the founder, super bright, ex-Google person, companies at about 30 people, but uh, for about a year and a half, it just couldn't hire more people. It was just stuck at 30. Yet the business was fantastic. It was at that point in time, it, it just did 25 million in revenue. It was profitable. And it was about to do 60 million revenue the following year. So I went and talked to Josh, really struck a chord with me who he is, what he's good at, what he's not good at. And he said, hey, look, I need someone to come in and take care of all the things that I don't really have time for. People ops, recruiting, facilities, finance, legal, biz dev, corp dev. So anything business related. So I go. And it's probably the, one of the hardest things I've had to do. He didn't want to hire three or four different people to do those roles. He wanted a, uh, for the lack of a better term, a business athlete who can learn and figure things out and be successful at them. And my past experience has been a lot of business athletics. The term that he and I use to describe someone like me is a knot untangler. You know, there are these knots problems. And it's really hard to untangle a lot of these things. And you may have seen certain knots, but then most of them you probably have never seen. And so how do you study this thing from which angle? How do you tug at this area first and go around and do another? I screwed up a bunch in the beginning, so it wasn't like I'm the perfect hire. But the point is I was very interested in those things. I really took the time to learn and figure things out really quickly. So when I joined Telepart, it was 30 people. And over the course of two and a half years, we grew the business to over $100 million in revenue. It was very, very profitable. It was 85 people by the time we sold to Twitter. And I was also part of that process to engage with Twitter and other companies to sell Telepart. And that was interesting. That was the first time in my career that I was on the sell side of things. And it gave me a really fresh perspective of what it means to be a compassionate buyer. Because back in the days, I didn't know how the sellers would feel. And so you just had the standard list of crap to ask for. And... You just didn't care whether it was produced or not, and it took a ton of time to be produced. So on the sell side this time, I was, I was thinking, I wish Twitter and others would just stop asking me these questions. <laughs> he was pulling all-nighters trying to get these, yeah. well, these numbers together. One, because they're kind of not relevant to our business, and two, they are a pain in the ass to get. So we got acquired, and that was in May of 2015. And my agreement with Twitter was, look, there's nothing at Twitter for me to do. It was a 4,000-person company. My main concern was to integrate Telepart into Twitter as effectively as possible. So I spent the next eight, nine months working with Twitter, working with Telepart to make sure everybody was taken care of in terms of their responsibilities, their organizational structure, where they sat. And in January of 2016... I left Twitter to take some time off.
to try to figure out what I want to do next. And there are you know, certain mentors in my life, and Andrew Braccio was one of them. He's the guy that I work for at Yahoo. And so he was one of the first people I talked to during my break. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about my next thing. Should I go to a, another telepart type company, small company, or should I go to a larger company? And he said, look, don't even think about any other company. Go talk to Slack. And I had known Slack. We used it at Telepart. I actually knew Stuart from Yahoo. Stuart is the CEO. And I knew a, a few other people also ex-Yahoo's. And so got back in touch with Stuart, talked to him, talked to a bunch of others. And it was very intriguing to learn what Slack is up to and also what Stuart's needs are in terms of a, a person like me. He needed someone to run Corp Dev and BizDev, just like LinkedIn, but he also needed somebody to help him with things that he just, just doesn't have time for. So acting more like a chief of staff role was sort of the, uh, the pitch that I made to him, and it resonated with him. Even though my break was cut short, I, thought, I felt, hey, Slack is this once-in-a-lifetime company. I want to come and help Stuart and the team, and so decided in April that I would, would join Slack and... Literally three days before I started, he said, hey, we're going through some org changes. And because one of your roles is to just take stuff that I don't have time to deal with, please run recruiting. And I was excited about that. Were you surprised by the fact that you may or may not expected that role or like additional responsibilities? Or I didn't expect it to be that soon. I thought it was, hey, come in, help me figure out the org, figure out what, what areas you should work on. And... Before I started, he said, please run recruiting for us. And that made sense. I did recruiting at Telepart. I really enjoyed it. And so that was what happened. And then after I joined, first order of business was to make sure CorpDev, BizDev, and recruiting are, are in a good spot. And they are. And then helping Stuart on a bunch of different projects like the international strategy, should Slack go international? If so, how? And then a few other high priority projects that we started to, to do. Yeah, I can't help but to look at your LinkedIn and saw uh, your headline is that the most effective way to do it is to do it, right? How does this model kind of flow throughout either from the early experiences or even recently? Is this something that you live by or is it your mission statement? I don't know if it's my mission statement. It's just in my experience, I've seen and come across a lot of people who talk a lot. And I think in a role of strategy or business development, you run into a lot of people who are very smart and articulate and they uh, communicate a lot, but they're also sometimes known as people who just talk and don't do anything. And for me, I try not to be that type of person. I also think you can overanalyze any small or big problem and until you actually start that first step to do something about it, you're probably not going to know if your original thesis is correct or not. And so to me, it's, if you're going to do something or if you have an hypothesis about something, just go ahead and start doing it because new information will come out and progress will be made. I recently read a book that sort of aligns with, with that statement, which is it's not that most people don't know what to do, is that they don't do what they know. And to me, you could try to learn about a bunch of different things and talk to a bunch of people about how to do certain things. But in the end, most people who I talk to or give advice to pretty much know what they're supposed to do mm. based on past experience or instincts. 
It's just that they are either not comfortable making that jump, making that decision, or they just need someone to nudge them to say, hey, you're, you're thinking about it the right way. Just go do it. Hand in hand with that statement, just go and do what you already know. The idea of being a business athlete, it's actually a term I haven't really heard of, and I love that term. How does one become that business athlete, right? Because I think a lot of people try to either focus on one area, one division, and really be that subject matter expert. How does someone get to where you are today? I think business athlete is good in some cases and not good in some cases. I think if in a larger company where you need specific skill sets for a certain position, you don't want to hire a business athlete. You want to hire for expertise. But in a smaller company or maybe at a more senior level where you oversee a bunch of different things, a business athlete could come in handy. For me, it's not so much that I know how to do a lot of things because I don't. I think that I take time to learn about the details of a problem or a specific function or a market. And it's more about asking the right questions and teasing out the information that you or your team needs to make certain decisions. That's really part of the skill set is knowing that problem and asking the right questions to try to solve the problem. I don't have answers to every single problem. I'm not an expert in every single thing, but I'm pretty good at looking at something and asking the right questions. I think the other thing that's important is making sure that you're a good leader, whether it's a people manager or just a leader of a particular initiative. And by that, I mean, uh, you don't have to be the nicest boss or you don't have to be the best at a certain skill or a certain area. You just have to make sure that people trust you and they feel empowered to work for you. And that's actually really hard to do. What are some efficiencies that you get with that? To totally empower that in individual. They feel accountability. They feel they own this thing. They're the ones getting credit. And if they feel all of that, they're going to put in their heart and soul into building partnerships. And if I get in the way of that, that's my failure. I think another key topic that you mentioned throughout your career is the idea of networking for your next role. What are, what are the pros and cons of networking from your perspective? And um, do you recommend and advise that people who are uncomfortable networking still push themselves to the limit and go ahead and network? Yeah, when I say networking, I don't mean go to all the conferences that you find and <laughs> go and introduce yourself with the name tag. <laughs> I think that's, that's one form of it. My own experience has been working at larger companies that provide opportunities to meet a lot of people. My biggest network is probably still Yahoo, where when I joined, it was 2,000 people. When I left, it was 15,000. I have no idea how many people I've met or worked with during the eight years I was there, but it's probably in the thousands. I don't consider any of those relationships actual networking. It's working relationship. People know you because they have either been in meetings with you or you had lunch together. Very organic. And those relationships carry me to even today. It's just a more organic or natural way to get to know people. It's also the more sub substantive way to get to know people. 
They know your reputation. They've interacted with you on a personal or professional level. They could speak to, hey, this person's really great at this thing or that or that. Versus, oh, I met this person at a at a conference. He seems pretty nice. Like that's not a substantial kind of network. And that leads me to also when I talk to people in their in their twenties or just coming out of school on what companies they should go to, I almost always tell them, look, you you're at an age where you don't have to go home at a certain time to go to a family. You're on the younger side and you can go out and hang out with your coworkers. Do that at a company that actually has more than 50 people. You're going to meet 50 people at your company in one week. But if you work at a company that's 500 people or 1,000 people and you stay there for a few years, you're going to build a really good solid network. Those people are going to go to different places and you can use that as the next company you go to. Switching gears a little bit, we are interested in learning about how does being Asian American actually uniquely affect your experience. And let's, let's start by hearing like, you know, what is your ethnicity and what kind of community did you grow up in? Yeah, I, I'm Chinese and I was born in Hong Kong. I moved to California when I was 10, to Bay Area actually. So my upbringing has been fairly Asian. Most of my close friends were Asians growing up. Then I went to Berkeley, and again, most of my friends were Asians. So it was a bit jarring going from college to investment banking, which is not mostly Asians. In fact, very few non-Caucasians. It's one of those things where if you're not as outgoing or articulate or just you know don't have a fear of talking to strangers, you'll do well. Right? Banking is a lot of interact people interactions. So if you're not naturally inclined to be social and have been exposed all your life to all kinds of different scenarios, you have to learn how to do it. It was hard for me. I often wonder, hey, should I have just done engineering at school? Pretty good at that stuff. I took a class and then I wouldn't have to talk to people. And I so, could, so would you say you're naturally, I'm guessing, like introvert or less sociable growing up? I still am. At a conference, I'm not the one that goes up to people to talk to them. I'll find people I know and talk to them. I like deep relationships. I like getting to know people once I get to know them. And that's why I like managing people. But as an Asian American, I think most people will tell you, you're not raised in a family that encourages social interactions with strangers. And therefore, you're, you're not as comfortable in a business setting that's dominated by non-Asians. How would you describe kind of core values of your upbringing, has any of those core values translated into the way you manage people today and, and how you work professionally today? My, my parents were pretty strict and I'd say their impact is more on how I raise my kids and what not to do. I <laughs> feel like there's a lot of pressure being put on my generation of kids. To me, it's more important that I let my kids do things that they enjoy and develop their passions versus forcing them to do certain lessons and hoping that they like it. And that's kind of my philosophy in managing people. You might be hired into a role and you might have to do certain things, but if it turns out that you're either not good at those things or you're not passionate about those things, then it is my job as a manager to find you projects that you're interested in or find you a role at the company that you're interested in Managers are taught to be like, hey, make sure your people are happy and they're on your team and they don't quit. And by opening up that conversation, 
you are actually sometimes encouraging to, to quit or leave your team or leave the company. But to me, that's perfectly fine because if they're not in the job that they love, they're not being peak performers. Let's talk about some of those deep relationships you mentioned. Does being Asian American or the people you are trying to connect with, them being Asian Americans or not being Asian Americans affect that relationship? Uh, not so much in the Bay Area. I don't really sense that barrier. I would say there are times that it's really easy to, to talk to someone who also came from Hong Kong, who loves Chinese food, who <laughs> loves dim sum, loves dim sum and, and can try to beat me at ping pong, that sort of stuff. And sure, you, know, you, you get to know those people quicker socially. But in the end, it's not like if you're Asian American, I'm better friends with you. And they have sped up the process of getting to know you on a personal side more. I think I'm fortunate enough to work with people who are very good at promoting diversity, who are looking at the best people for the jobs. I have felt in certain cases in business meetings with companies that might not be from this area or non-tech companies, and you're meeting with executives who may not take you as seriously because you're not Caucasian, you don't have a ton of gray hair, and my experience have been few and far between. Yeah, just looking at some of the data on the demographics in tech, let's say roughly a third um, are Asians working in tech, but looking at the C-suite level, we don't really see as it's not represented at that same proportion. Is that a signal or why do you think that is the case? Maybe I'll generalize a bit here. I think most Asians, my generation, maybe, maybe I don't think we're that far apart in age, but I'll just say your generation. <laughs> We've been raised a certain way where hey, you should be an engineer or you should be a doctor or some kind of professional. And as a result, I think fewer percentage of Asians go into a business-related field. And when you look at the C-suite, other than your head of engineering and maybe your head of product, everything else is more business. And so the available number of position as a C-suite becomes less to a population that is mostly engineering or product. And therefore... Even if you look at a C-suite of 10 people, even if the head of product and head of engineering are Asians, that's still only 20% because most of the other positions are with people who are not Asians because there are fewer, fewer Asians in those non-technical positions. So I think it's a matter of just the numbers. I have personally not felt like, oh, because I'm Chinese, I can't be a part of the executive team. That, that has never been an issue. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fish Sauce. If you like what you heard, like our Facebook page, Fish Sauce Podcast, and follow us on Twitter at Fish Sauce Pod for any episodes or latest updates. If our mission resonates with you, leave a review on our iTunes page. We'd love to welcome you and your friends into our Fish Sauce family. And lastly, Big shout out to our awesome editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of Fish Sauce.